I do trust that today's passage is going to open up some of the riches of God's uh, mercy and wonderful grace to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn with me in the scriptures to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, our text today will be from verse 21 down through verse 31. Galatians 4, uh, verse 21 down through the end of the chapter. Uh, It's been uh, really uh, close to a couple of months, maybe a month and a half since we've been together in the book of uh, Galatians, what a joy it is. Again, to return to this book, which is a book which speaks about the freeness of God's grace to us in uh, Jesus Christ, about the glory of the gospel of Christ and uh, the importance of guarding that gospel and continuing to believe that gospel and to proclaim that gospel uh, all the days of our lives Uh, Our text again is Galatians 4, uh, beginning in verse 21. I'll go ahead and read uh, this portion of God's word. Let's pay careful attention to the word as it is read. Uh, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Uh, But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Uh, One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This ends this reading in God's word. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you for every sentence of your holy word, and we pray now that with the help of your Spirit, Lord, that this word would become clear to us, that you would give to our minds understanding, and Lord, that you would impact not only our minds, but our hearts and our wills. Lord, above all, that we would grow in faith and love toward our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Uh, bless us now this hour. We seek your face humbly. Oh, meet with us, living God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Well, is Christianity a religion of slavery or of freedom? Now, there are many who would view it as slavery. They would say, well, the Christian lifestyle is narrow. It's restrictive. It's binding. It keeps me from being who I want to be. It's all about rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. God seems like a hard taskmaster that we are continually trying to satisfy, but it seems that I just never can. We are left in a state of continuous, joyless misery. That's how some would view Christianity. But in reality, that is actually a terrible misconception of what Christianity is about. Uh, Christianity, uh, the true religion revealed in Scripture, is actually a religion of glorious freedom. You see, you and I are born into slavery. We are born sinners in a kind of terrible bondage. But it is actually God who in his sovereign mercy sets us free. And to become a Christian is actually to experience a freedom uh, in many different dimensions. On the one hand, there is a freedom from sin's just penalty the wrath of God. You see, by nature, we are like prisoners on death row. That's what sinners are. Under a verdict of just condemnation to eternal death. But when we become a Christian in Christ, we receive a different verdict. Because of Christ's saving work, we are now freed from that state of condemnation and instead are now declared to be not guilty, righteous, accepted by God, and heirs not of death but of life. That's freedom, brothers, sisters. But it's not only a freedom from sin's just penalty, there's also a freedom from sin's power that comes when we become Christians. A Satan once held a controlling power in our lives. By nature, we can't help but sin. But now, by God's grace, that dominating power of sin in our lives has been broken. And though we still struggle with indwelling sin, with the help of God's Spirit, we are enabled increasingly to live unto God with the assurance that in glory we are going to be entirely freed from that sin. And again, that's freedom. That's freedom. But not only is there a freedom from sin's just penalty and a freedom from sin's power, but there is also then a freedom to fulfill our created purpose. Why do you exist? For what were you made? Well, you are a created being made to worship and to glorify the God who made you, and to find your highest joy in Him. 
And do you see, when God, by His redeeming grace, comes into our lives, what He does is He redeems us from slavery to sin and brings us into His family, where we then have the privilege of bearing that family likeness and of living for Him and for His glory. And so the Christian's obedience, and make no mistake, we are called to obey, but our obedience is not a slavish obedience out of fear, but rather the obedience of a son who delights to do the Father's will. And we obey God in joyful response to God's mercy to us. We do it by the power of His Holy Spirit that is dwelling in us. We do it with the hope of everlasting life ahead of us. We do it in service to a kingdom that is bigger than us and that will never fade away. And friends, that is not slavery of any kind. That is glorious, glorious freedom. And so Christianity is freedom. It is not slavery. And so, brothers and sisters, knowing that freedom in Christ, we must then resist every attempt to make Christianity, again, into a kind of slavery. That's what was happening in Galatia. Uh, These Galatian Christians, Jew and Gentile alike, had been wonderfully converted through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. They had experienced the kind of freedom that we just spoke of in Christ. But now there was a group of false teachers called the Judaizers who had come and began to insist to the Galatian church that they must be circumcised. They began to insist on human achievement as a way of satisfying God. They began to insist on keeping the Jewish law in all of its particularities and this glorious religion of freedom was increasingly then becoming a religion of slavery and of bondage. Uh, Phil Riken, in his excellent commentary, puts it this way. He said uh, that we often do the same thing as what was happening in Galatia. Uh, We can forget that Christianity is a form of liberty and not slavery. We reduce faith in Christ to a list of rules or traditions, we evaluate our spiritual standing by what we do for God rather than by what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. In truth, we are all recovering Pharisees in constant danger of forgetting to live only by faith and choosing instead to go right back under the law. That's why this section of Galatians is so helpful to us. And so to make this point that true Christianity is a religion of freedom, Paul now, in the end of chapter 4, turns once again, just as he did in chapter 3, to the Old Testament. Isn't it so interesting that he uses the Old Testament, which the Judaizers themselves love to appeal to? And he said, dear friends, the story of the Old Testament, just as the New Testament, now that Christ has come, the story of the Old Testament was also that of a religion of grace, and a religion of freedom, and a religion of, uh, of, of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so that's where he goes now. And so it is once again to the Old Testament uh, that we're going to turn here in Galatians chapter 4. Well, our outline, this is an extended introduction to come into this 
uh, outline here of, again, a religion of freedom, not of slavery. And we're going to look at this under three different headings. And again, I borrow, uh, actually, this outline from a number of commentators who have divided the passage in this way, Phil Reich and John Stott, among others, and I do think it is by far the most helpful division of this text. We're going to go through it in three stages here. First of all, looking at a historical situation, verses 22 and 23. Secondly, an allegorical interpretation, verses 24 through 27. And then practical application in verses 28 through 31. So a historical situation, an allegorical interpretation, and then lastly, a practical application. Well, first of all, a historical uh, situation. And we see this in verses 22 and 23. And here the Apostle Paul refers to an incident in the book of Genesis and the two children that Abraham had, a child named Ishmael and a child named Isaac. Now you might ask the question, well, why does Paul turn to this particular incident? Well, most likely it was because the Judaizers themselves would have appealed to this passage boasting of their true Jewish lineage and pedigree. They would have said, we, the Jews, are the children of Isaac. You Gentiles are children of Ishmael. If you really want to inherit the blessing, become like us. And Paul says, well, wait a second here. Let's look at that story in a little bit more uh, detail. Many of you who have maybe grown up in church or read your Bibles for some time or are familiar with the story out of Genesis. Perhaps some of you children here know about the story of uh, Abraham and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac. You'll remember that Abraham had been given a promise, a covenant promise by God. It was a promise that he was going to have a seed after him, a seed actually that was going to be as many as the stars of heaven and the grains of sand on the seashore that of Abraham would come a great nation, and that through Abraham all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so this covenant promise really depended on Abraham having a child. But the problem was, was that Abraham and his wife Sarah had grown old, and they didn't have any children. And they began to wonder, well, are we going to have any children at all? And so... Sarah herself came up with an idea. Well, how about, how about we have children? I'm too old to have a child now, so instead have a child by our maidservant, Hagar. Uh, she says, uh, literally, well, it may be, Sarah said, that I shall obtain children by her. So Abraham had relations with Hagar and bore a son, Ishmael. But Ishmael was not that child of promise. Instead, it was 13 years after that when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90, okay, far past the age of normal childbearing, that Sarah herself actually became pregnant and bore Isaac. And Isaac was that child of promise. And so two children were born to Abraham. 
And there were two important differences between these children. On the one hand, the first difference was that one child was slave, Ishmael, and the other was free, Isaac. That was, even though they had the same father, it was actually the mother who determined the status of the child. And so though though Ishmael was Abraham's son, nonetheless, he was Hagar's son and was born into a status of slavery. But the second difference between the two, and this is the most important, was that the one, the slave child, was born according to the flesh. And the other, Isaac, the the free child, was born through the promise. Now, what do we mean by this? Well, Ishmael was born because Abraham and Sarah sought to obtain the promise in their, or to obtain the blessing in their own way. They, as it were, doubted the promise of God and instead Through their own action, by their own achievement, they sought to inherit the blessing. They relied on the flesh. Ishmael represents the the attempt to achieve standing with God by our own activity rather than trusting the grace and power of God. But the birth of Isaac was entirely different. There can be no doubt that Isaac was born purely by God's gift and power, and that was it. Why was Isaac born? It was because God had promised that this child would be born. God promised, God delivered, God gave this child who was free, Isaac. So the question then becomes, well, who then is really like Isaac, the children of promise? You see, the Judaizers were saying, well, we have the true Jewish Pedigree, we are the children of Isaac. And Paul's saying, no, wait a second here. You, Judaizers, are seeking to secure God's favor by the works of the flesh. You are enslaved by rules and regulations and traditions. Who are the real children of Isaac? Is it not those who simply come, who, 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 Uh, uh, come into the blessing through the grace of God by the promise of God alone. Is it not the Galatian Christians who simply heard the message of the gospel of what God had done through Jesus Christ and believed in that message and attributed all of their standing to what God had done, whose boast was not in their own works and in their own flesh, but whose boast was in Jesus Christ alone. These are the children of promise. And it was these Gentile Christians who, along with Christians in every age, are the true children of Isaac, free and inheritors of the blessing. And so that is why Paul goes to this particular historical incident. That's the historical situation. But now secondly, secondly, I want us to consider the allegorical interpretation. The allegorical interpretation. We find this beginning in verse 24 down through verse 27. Now, verse 24 is interesting. It says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Some of you may know what an allegory is. An allegory is a story in which every character or event in that story actually stands for or represents something else. 
Uh, perhaps the most famous allegory of all time would be the book that the children have just done in Kids Club, Pilgrim's Progress, is a very famous allegory. Now, when Paul says that this passage may be interpreted allegorically, uh, he's not saying that all this business about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, that's just a made-up story where everything represents something else, but rather he's saying from this true story, we can discern a pattern, or we might use the word even an analogy, that is repeated time and time again throughout Holy Scripture. That is, that this story of Hagar and Sarah and so forth is actually, uh, or, or that, this, uh, 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 that this, again, provides a kind of pattern uh, uh, that we see uh, repeated uh, time and again. And what he does here is he kind of lines up things in two different columns. Okay, on the one hand, he lines up Hagar and Ishmael to the covenant of law that was given at Mount Sinai. And he says that corresponds to the Jerusalem that is now, present-day Jerusalem. And that bears children for slavery. But on the other hand, in the second column, he says, well, we have Sarah and we have Isaac, born as a child of promise. And even though it's not explicitly mentioned, he's, he's essentially saying, implied, that this lines up with the covenant of God's grace and that corresponds to the Jerusalem which is above, the true church, saved through the work of Jesus Christ, and those children are free. And so the question is, of which one are you? So let's open this up a little bit. First of all, that first column, where he's saying Hagar and Ishmael correspond to that covenant that was given at Sinai. In Arabia, it's interesting, he mentions that about Arabia, and actually the children of Ishmael went to live in Arabia, so he's maybe even perhaps making some connection there, but it was on Mount Sinai, you well know, in the Old Testament that God gave uh, the law. Now, the law had a good purpose in God's plan. Uh, Mount Sinai was a good thing, not, not a bad thing. It was of God, not of the devil. But what was God doing on Mount Sinai? Well, God was revealing a law. But it was a law that was revealed not in order to show us the way of life, because none of us can keep that law, but rather it was a law which is to show us our own sin, to expose our shortcoming, as it were, to lead us to a point of despair of ever finding life in ourselves and to look to the Savior whom the Lord would send, whom that ceremonies and the temple and the tabernacle and the sacrifices of the Old Testament all pointed to, which ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Judaizers had taken God's good law and they had turned it on its head. And rather than saying, well, the law shows me how bad I am and how desperately in need of God's grace that I am, they said, oh, here's the law and I'm doing pretty good with it. And it became their boast. And he's saying, well, if we just take the law in itself, 
apart from God's gracious purpose, well, that law itself, in itself, leads only to slavery. If your religion is only a religion of law, it leads to bondage. And that's the point here. And he says that that bondage then corresponds to the present-day Jerusalem. In the first century, uh, the Jerusalem dominated by those who were not Christians, but practicing Jews of, those, of that day, they were legalists, is what he, was say, he is saying. And it's ultimately a religion of slavery. But in distinction from that, we look at that second column now. What God had done in giving a promise to Abraham and Sarah and delivering Isaac as a child of promise, not through human merit or human achievement, but according to the work of God, the sovereign grace of God in keeping His promise, he is saying that that work ultimately, and again here it's just implied, it, 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 it corresponds with a covenant of God's grace to us in Christ and ultimately corresponds, as he says in verse 26, to the Jerusalem that is above. The Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. In other words, the main point is not just that earthly city of Jerusalem, but rather uh, that earthly city of Jerusalem points even to uh, the, uh, uh, the Jerusalem that is above the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the people whom God is saving by uh, sovereign grace and to whom he is bringing spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it is this Jerusalem that is above that we should long to be a part of. And that if you are in Jesus Christ, then Christ has made you a part of that. And as a member of this church, as the Jerusalem that is above, you have gained victory over the world and the flesh and the devil. No longer in bondage to sin. No longer in bondage to the efforts to justify yourself. But rather, you have uh, uh, the warfare has been accomplished. We have a deliverer. We belong by God's grace through faith. Savior of Zion City, does not that hymn speak of the heavenly Jerusalem ultimately? Savior, if of Zion's city, I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. And so to be a part, that is the Jerusalem of which we are a part. So Sarah, Isaac leads to freedom through God's covenant of grace, membership in the Jerusalem that is above. And then he goes on in verse 27, there to speak of uh, a prophecy, again from the Old Testament, how often he's turning to the Old Testament. And verse 27 ultimately is going to point us to the great building and the multiplying of this city of the Jerusalem that is above as the trophy of God's grace. It's actually a quotation of Isaiah 54 and verse 1. It applied to Jerusalem at the time of the exile to Babylon in 586 B.C. And at that time, as the people of God in 586 B.C. were being dragged into exile in Babylon, they were like a barren woman who was not bearing. They were in a position of, uh, they were small and frail 
and seem to be dominated by this foreign power. But the promise of this text is, Isaiah says, break forth, cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a a husband. The promise is, look ahead to the future, that what God is going to do is He is going to build His people. So shout for joy, be glad, you may be barren now but you are going to multiply greatly. And ultimately, these are words which are fulfilled in the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ as Jew and Gentile alike come into the kingdom, believing upon Him, and a multitude throughout the world are brought into uh, the church. And though we live in a wicked, evil world, Christ is building His church. That's the promise. And to be part of this Jerusalem that is above, to be saved by God's grace, is to be part of this great city which the Lord Himself is building that will consist of a great multitude and that has a great future in His presence in glory forever and ever. That's the promise here. So that's the allegory that's opened up for us. This allegory, this pattern that we see repeated through Scripture, the the difference between a religion of slavery tied to works and a religion of freedom that is the result of God's sovereign grace. And this takes us then finally to the present or to the the personal or practical application. So we've seen a historical situation, secondly, an allegorical interpretation. And then thirdly and finally, and here we're going to get practical, to the practical application. What does any of this, all this stuff about Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael and so forth, what does this have to do with my life now? Well, it has a lot to do with our lives now, dear Christian. And we find this application spelled out for us in verses 28 through 31. And ultimately, we see three things here. Three things here. And the first is this. It is that you are to recognize, dear Christian, recognize your identity as children of promise. Recognize your identity as children of promise. Verse 28, Now you, brothers, just like Isaac, who was born by God's grace, By God's power, according to God's promise, you, just like Isaac, are children of promise. Just as he was born in that way, you have been reborn in that way. Not by your works, but by his grace. O child of God, you have been born into a heavenly family. And you belong to him. And so we are to live daily as Christians, not as slaves, but as free, as those who are relying daily, moment by moment, on the grace and mercy of God. It is by His grace alone that I am what I am. Every single day, the value of my life is determined not by the things that I have achieved, not by the standards that I have reached, not by the law that I have kept, but rather it is measured by the abundance of the Lord's grace and that alone. And so we are to maintain a relationship with God that lives in constant reliance upon 
and in gratefulness for his grace. We live by grace alone daily. And can I say to any of you that have not yet believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that this is pointing you towards a way of wonderful freedom. The Bible says that if we do not belong to Jesus, we are ultimately in a state of slavery, measuring our lives by the things that we can achieve. We can never do enough. But the answer is, is that God has done everything that we need for salvation through Jesus Christ. And when we believe on Him, we become inheritors of the greatest blessing. And it's through what He has done. And faith is simply the empty hand bringing nothing at all to the table but my own sin. And faith is that empty hand receiving a whole Christ with all of His benefits. And it is the way to freedom and to joy and to happiness. It is the way of freedom. So can we recognize, first of all, our identity as children of promise? But the second thing, second practical application, if the first is to recognize your identity, the second is to remember your identity when suffering. Remember your identity when suffering. We see this in verse 29. He says, just as at, as at, at, just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. And here again, he recalls the events in Genesis. And we're reminded of an incident when, and the hint is, is that this was not just a one-time thing, but that Ishmael, the older son born to Hagar, mocked the younger son, Isaac. He's saying this is actually a pattern that has been repeated throughout history. It was repeated in the first century, the Judaizers coming and persecuting the Christians. You don't have it together, and they, and they cause them to suffer. And it's happened time and again throughout history as Christians suffer and face persecution, and often from legalists is where the suffering comes. The time of the Reformation. Protestants suffering terribly often under the Roman Catholic Church. It happens today. That terrible legalism of our day called Islam. And the kind of persecution that Christians throughout the world undergo from that. You know, even secularism is a kind of legalism, ultimately. You know, unless you believe kind of the secular ethic of our day, then you don't count. You, it's not good enough. <laughs> you need to fit in with the mindset, the spirit of the age. And they persecute often Christians or name-call Christians who, who don't adopt that lifestyle, that mindset of our, present, of our present age. And so Christians do often suffer. God's people will be persecuted at times. And you know, to become a Christian, and this is the, the oddity, and this would have been this way for the first century, you say, well, to become a Christian is to enter into a, a life of freedom, a life of joy, a life of peace. And what happens, it seems, well, many of my circumstances grow worse, <laughs> right? To become a Christian often means to undergo suffering, and perhaps it's to, to be ostracized at work or at your school. Perhaps it's to lose relationships within your family. Perhaps it's to give up 
um, money and possessions and to be deprived of things because you're obedient and seeking to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, the two things don't quite seem to match up, do they? How, if Christianity is such a life of freedom, how come I'm suffering so much? And he's saying, well, what you need to do is to remember that amidst your outward suffering, remember who you truly are. And this is why even uh, in the scriptures, uh, the Bible can call slaves, slaves even suffering under a terribly unjust system of slavery. He can say, slaves, remember that you are Christ's freedmen. And so we can believe under a time of suffering that ultimately that we belong to God. And no matter what outward circumstances you're going through, what difficult times, what you need to do is to daily remember who you are in Jesus Christ. I am a child of God. He has loved me with an everlasting love. He sent Jesus Christ to die for me. I am an inheritor of eternal life. All things belong to me through him. I have Jesus Christ and everything. And no matter what it is that you're going through, no matter what it is that you're suffering, to remember all that you have in Christ can turn even those sufferings into times of great joy. So remember your identity when suffering. But thirdly, if we're to recognize our identity as children of promise, remember your identity when suffering. Thirdly is this, retain your identity against the threat of legalism. Retain your identity against the threat of legalism. We find this in verse 30. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And here it's talking about what, what happened uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, Sarah, uh, casting out Hagar and Ishmael, they shall no longer live within Abraham's household. And you might look at that and you say, was that rather harsh? Well, what Sarah was doing there was making plain the principle that is the hallmark of all true religion. And this is the deeper principle behind all of that. It is that the inheritance, God's promise, comes by grace and not by human efforts or works. And there can't be any mixture of the two. It's not that both Ishmael and Isaac are children of the promise. It's not by works and by grace but it is by God's grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, that we become inheritors of the blessing. And this is why, as the church of Jesus Christ, we need to stridently oppose any and all forms of legalism which would seek to intrude and to water down the gospel of grace. This is why Paul was so up in arms about what was going on in Galatia and why we, at all costs today, need to say that the gospel is that and that alone, God's grace through faith in Christ alone and nothing else, and nothing else. That's why I'm thankful. In the last 15 or 20 years, there have been a couple of movements that have affected Reformed churches. There's one called the New Perspective on Paul and another called the Federal Vision and some of you are familiar with those things. Many of you are not. That's fine. We're not going to go into the details other than to say that each were 
rather subtle forms of legalism, saying that justification, new perspective on Paul, justification is a matter of Christ's work, but also our covenant faithfulness. Or the federal vision saying that we are brought into the covenant by God's grace, we are kept in the covenant by our works. And I'm grateful to be a part of, the church, part of a church that said, this is an attack on the gospel of grace, and we're not going to have any part of it. You see, we protect the glory of the gospel. And we ought not to think, well, all religions are basically the same. They are not. There's one gospel, the only gospel that saves. We as a church need to retain that, to protect, to proclaim that gospel and that alone. Cast out the slave woman and her son, it says. But even as there's an application in that to the church, there's also an application into our lives personally. As Bill Riken said, we are all in many ways recovering Pharisees. And it is very easy to fall prey to the temptation that having been saved by God's grace alone and at one moment to say, I am a lost sinner, desperately in need of the grace of God. I am saved only because of what he has done to rescue me through Jesus Christ. There is indeed this incipient temptation that over time we will begin to boast not so much in Christ but in my works. Begin to find our value not in what he has done but in what I have done. Begin to measure our lives by my job, my success, my grades in school, my popularity, or even, perhaps it seems more holy, by the things that I have done for God, by my commitment to the things of God or to the church of God. Friends, none of those things are ever, ever, ever the measure of our standing with the Lord. And the when we begin to think in those ways, we need to cast out that slave woman and her son. And return to that glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that I am saved by him alone. That's it. Fall on our faces before him and cry out for his mercy and say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. The moment I was saved, that's what I was. My dying day, that's what I'm going to be. And in glory, even after I've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, even then my only testimony is going to be, I am a sinner saved by the sovereign grace of God. Is that our testimony? Might we remember this glorious, glorious religion of freedom, which is called Christianity, which is the only gospel that saves. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these truths of your word. We pray, Lord, that we would do these things, that we would recognize our identity as children of promise, that we would remember our identity when suffering, that we would retain our identity against the threat of legalism, we pray. Lord, our God, we pray that we would always boast, not in ourselves, but boast in our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has done it all for us. Oh, might you be our boast now and forevermore. And we pray all of these things.